Luke 6, 1 through 11. Let me again pray for us briefly as we come to the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you do not withhold your word from us. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we pray, our God, that you would cause your word to enter deep within us. We pray that you would shine the light of the gospel into our hearts. We pray that you would give us a clear sight of the Savior this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us to not only see you on the pages of Scripture, but to see you with the eyes of faith. We pray that you would work your almighty power and your saving and sanctifying grace in us. We pray that you would build us up through the ministry of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 6, beginning, beginning in verse 1. And Luke now writes, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder how you would feel if someone invited you out, if you're a golfer, somebody invited you out to a new golf course, and it had been, um, everything had been planned perfectly, and the course had been laid out, and there's excitement about this course, and you go to the course, and the people who are working there say, I know you've come to play on this course, but because everything is so nice, we really don't want you to put uh, divots in, in the fairway, and so you have to hit every shot from the rough. Now, okay, ladies, I'll give you one since all the ladies are now thoroughly bored. Uh, imagine you're ex- you invited to um, a prestigious dinner, and the table is set, everything is beautiful, all of the fine china is out, all of the nice silverware, and the meal is an eight-course meal, and everything is planned, and there's a menu, and it's all set out, and the people who are serving, once you show up there, say, you know, I know you were invited to this dinner, but you have to go into the kitchen and eat McDonald's tonight because we don't want to mess any of this up. We don't want any of this beautiful presentation to be ruined. Now, you may say, okay, where are we going on here? The Sabbath day is like the golf course or the dinner. It is a blessing from God. It is the greatest blessing from God. At creation, after God made man, he he ceased working and he rested and he hallowed that day and he said this will be a day for man to enjoy me to enter into the fullness of the joy of the living god this will be as the puritans used to call it a market day of the soul this will be a day 
for you to feast. This will be a day for you to celebrate the redeeming work I have done. This will be a day for you to have a little foretaste of heaven. And then the religious leaders in Israel came along in the days of Jesus and they said, now you don't want to enjoy this day too much. Uh, If God said you shall not work, you shall not make others work, you shall enter into the joy of the Lord. This shall be a day set apart for the Lord and a day in which you grow spiritually and delight in him. The Pharisees came along and they said, let's make sure that we don't mess up this fair way in any way whatsoever. Let's make sure we don't mess up this beautiful uh, banquet that has been spread. You go over there and hit from the rough and you go over there and eat crummy fast food to make sure that this doesn't get messed up. That, that is the heart of what the Pharisees did by adding rules and regulations and layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of man-made laws to, in their thinking, protect the Sabbath day. Now, uh, in one sense, what we're going to look at this morning is foreign to 21st century America and evangelicalism in 21st century America. I don't think the great problem with the church, even with our church, is that we're too consumed with observing the Lord's day. Let me just put that out there. I'm going to guess that our bigger problem is that we don't observe the Lord's Day. So I'm going to go ahead and put that out there. I will argue with you about that. I am sure I'm right. I'm sure I'm right. And I'm sure I don't sound humble, but I'm sure I'm right. The problem in Jesus' day is that they were legalistically and what we now say pharisaically, the religious leaders, were keeping people from fully enjoying what the day was and putting shackles on them so that they were making it a day of bondage and soul affliction rather than a day of delight and rest. No, it was uh, St. Augustine. Augustine is the city in Florida. Augustine is the theologian. Um, It was St. Augustine who, at the beginning of the Confessions, uh, penned these famous words, You move us to delight in praising you. For you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Isn't that the story of the world in which we live? You know, I was, I was intrigued a number of years ago to notice that the secular business world and leadership magazines around 2007, 8, 9, 10 started uh, appropriating the language of Sabbath. These were not Jewish businesses. These were not Christian business leaders. And and one article I actually found uh, in Yes Magazine was written by a woman. It was called uh, Redeeming the Secular Sabbath. And, And the idea was take a break from this, take a break from that, learn to examine yourself, learn to pull back, and you'll be a better person for it. Now, it's interesting because on a common grace level, they're right. Um, one theologian has said, you know, all of us have in us a time clock that goes day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, work, 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 work. And day seven says you need rest. There is built into your constitution as an image bearer the fact that you cannot just work incessantly, that not just the normal sleep schedule at night, but God has created us on that one in seven principle, and he has called us to set apart one day in seven and to enter into that rest that he has prepared for us and to understand that that rest is a picture of the everlasting rest that he has secured for us in Jesus. And Jesus comes, doesn't he? And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Now, 
In the passage we're going to look at this morning, we have Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath. He is declaring that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has come to bring the rest. He has come to bring the joy. He has come to bring the restoration. He has come to bring the new creation. We have seen in the recent accounts that he, in a sense, gives rest to the leper when he heals some of his leprosy. And he puts his hand on him and touches him and he cleanses him. We have seen that he, in a very real sense, gives rest to the paralytic who was so burdened by his paralysis. And Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk after saying, son, your sins are forgiven you. He has given that man rest. And in the calling of Levi, he has given this greedy, extortioning, money-loving, wicked tax collector rest from the burdens of his sin, and he has called him to himself and made him one of his disciples, and he has feasted with him. And so notice that connection. The very last thing that we see Luke talk about at chapter 5 is that uh, Jesus is there at the feast, and who's there but the Pharisees, and they're grumbling, and they're complaining, and they're contending with Jesus. This is the beginning of the contentions, and Luke is now focusing in a special way on the special contentions that the religious leaders in Jesus' day had with him over the day of rest. Now, before I give you any points or tell you anything that we're going to look at in detail, I do want to say this this morning, that uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the other political and religious leaders in Israel, they, they saw themselves as the self-appointed protectors or keepers of the Sabbath day, in part because for several hundred years they were under Roman domination. I want you to think about this. When God formed Israel, they were a special people. He gave them his worship. He gave them his covenants. He gave them his Sabbath day. He gave them the temple worship. He gave them the sacrificial system. He gave them everything that points forward to the Redeemer. He said, this is all for you. It's all preparatory. You are unique and distinct. You will be a distinct people unto me. No people on the face of the earth will have what you had in the old covenant until the coming of my son who will then transform and realize all that in himself. And by the time that Jesus comes, Israel is under Roman domination. They have hefty taxation on them. They have lost their native language, Hebrew. They're all speaking Aramaic at this time. So you can see how all of their heritage that God had given them is sort of fading away. It's all being lost. And, um, and they don't have a king. Herod is really not their king. They haven't had a king since before the Babylonian captivity. So, and they haven't had any prophets for 400 years till John the Baptist. So no prophet, no king. The temple was destroyed and rebuilt. They lost their language. They lost their freedoms. They lost their unique covenantal identity as God's people in the world. And so what the Pharisees did was they came along and they said, well, we still have the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was a creation ordinance. It predates Israel. It goes back to the very beginning. The Sabbath is not just for Israel. Jesus will not say in this passage, the Sabbath was made for Israel, not Israel for the Sabbath. He will say in the parallel passages, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So God created the one in seven for man to rest and to worship and to be spiritually rejuvenated. And the Pharisees came along 
And they said, that's something that we can build a whole infrastructure around to make sure that no one violates this and that we preserve this. And the reason they were doing this, and you have to listen very carefully, the reason they were doing this is they thought that that was something they were good at and something that they could then bind other people with. Um, John Calvin says, we are so fickle that we like to find things that we're good at and instantly make a law out of it and then bind other people to it and expect them to try to live up to our law. Um, (laughs) Tim Keller, and I love this, he says, you know, you think you're going to be justified by your works? You you can't even keep your own standard. (laughs) I mean, this is why we have New Year's resolutions. You can't even keep your own dumb standard of I'm going to work out more, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do better with finances, I'm going to do better here. You think you're going to keep God's law? And yet the Pharisees reduced it down and thought, we, we are, in a sense, putting all God's commandments on the fourth commandment, and we will build this whole system around it, bind other people, concern ourselves with what they're doing, and in that sense, we will be righteous. Now, here's the other very sinister thing about this. The fourth commandment has to do with worship. So the Pharisees could convince themselves we're pleasing God by doing this because this has to do with worship. This is the day of worship. So if we build all these other laws and we police everybody else as to them, setting aside God's commandment in essence, nevertheless, we are a religious people. And this is 24 hours that we are doing what's pleasing to God when they were really just pleasing themselves self-righteously. Now, we're going to see two things here after that long introduction. We're going to see first the contention of the Pharisees with Jesus over uh, the disciples And then we're going to see the contention of the Pharisees with Jesus over Jesus' healing of the man in the synagogue. Notice this. Luke says, on the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Now, uh, you probably, given what I said at the beginning of this, that our great problem is not that we love the Sabbath too much, but that we don't care about the Lord's day, that the... um, this is not going to strike you as, as difficult. Okay, that's not fair. They're rubbing heads of grain. Who cares? Well, you would care if you knew that in Exodus, when God gave the manna, the heavenly bread, magically for 40 years from heaven, supernaturally, not magically, um, it's like magic, supernatural bread falling from heaven, angels' bread coming down, feeding the people, they were to gather that manna for six days, and they were to gather extra on the sixth day, and they were not to gather on the Sabbath, and if they did, God would kill them. That's how serious God is about the Lord's Day. Now, um, there is another account in, I believe, the book of Numbers, in which a man goes out and he gathers sticks on the Sabbath, and God strikes him dead. And, And you could say, well, I don't like that. Who cares what you think? God is infinitely holy. That's the point. Let's care about what God cares about. God cares about his holiness. God cares about you fearing him and trusting him and listening to him and obeying him. And that's the point. That man despised the Lord. That man despised what the fourth commandment pointed to. That man despised the promise of redemption. That man said, I will be a covenant breaker. I don't care what the God of Israel has said to me. Now, that, that's something that's foreign to most of us. 
Um, that's foreign to most of us. And yet that's in the Old Testament. That's in the scriptures. That is the God we worship. There are not two gods. There's not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. That is, there's one God, Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. That is his law, his commandments. The bread pointed to him. He is the only God there is. He is the true and living God, the triune God. Now, you could see how then the Pharisees on a prima facie reading of this seem almost justified. Here, Jesus is walking with his disciples through somebody else's grain field, and they're plucking the heads of grain, and they're eating. Maybe it's corn. There's different translations of this and what exactly it was, but they are taking produce out of someone's field. They are, in a, in a sense, exerting energy in order to feed themselves as they go on in ministry. And the Pharisees come, and they contend. Notice this. They contend, and they, they say to Jesus, why do your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, it was actually lawful to walk through grain fields. It was lawful to uh, glean from somebody else's grain field. That was one way that God provided for his people. It was one way of showing that God was merciful and bountiful. It was another way of showing us that we are to be merciful. How is that fair that God would allow somebody to walk through my grain field? How is it fair that God gives me grain? How is it fair that God provides everything for me abundantly? I, I don't make it rain. We are not rainmakers. Um, God provides. God brings forth the produce of the field. And God bountifully said to Israel that you could walk through the grain fields of another and you could glean off of it. You couldn't take a sheath out and you couldn't go to work. That would be stealing their produce. You couldn't harvest in their field, but you could pluck the remnants, as it were, with which you would feed yourself. And so there is a very clear principle in God's law that God is a God of mercy and that it was not only okay, it was right that people would walk through grain fields and that those who own them would allow people to do that. But notice that Jesus and his disciples are doing it on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are saying this is unlawful to do on the Sabbath. Nowhere in God's word did it ever say, you can walk through the grain fields of another and you can glean from their grain except on the Sabbath day. Now, what the Pharisees would have done is they would have gone back to the manna and to the man collecting sticks and they would have then made an application and said, anytime you are doing anything, exerting any kind of influence for yourself, any kind of energy for yourself in providing for yourself, you are violating the Sabbath. And that is just patently untrue, according to Jesus. We're not to work, ordinary uh, vocation on the Lord's day. That is true. The fourth commandment binds us to that. But here, Jesus and his disciples are walking through this field. And notice what Jesus says in defending them in verse 3. Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? Now, this is absolutely brilliant. And I want us to get how brilliant this is this morning. Uh, first of all, Jesus knows the scriptures better than anybody. I mean, he instantly reaches into the Old Testament to 1 Samuel 21. And he knows all of it. It's all his word, but he's learned it in his incarnate person. He knows the scriptures so well. 
he is the son of David. Remember, he is the direct descendant of David. His genealogy in Luke 3 posits for us his descent from David. He is the one God covenanted with David about that he would be the son of David. That's why in our Christmas hymns we sing about the son of David and the rod of Jesse. He is David's son. And he knows perfectly about the life of David because he is also David's Lord. And Jesus appeals to 1 Samuel 21. If you went back there, and don't turn there, but I'll tell you, David is fleeing from Saul. Jonathan has just shot the arrows and uh, has realized that his father wants to kill David, and he's warned David, and David has gone to Nob, and he has gone to a priest named Ahimelech, and he and the men who are with him are tired and they're hungry, and he goes to the priest and he says, do you have any bread here? And the priest says, I don't have any ordinary bread here. I only have the show bread. And David said, give it to me. Now, it's been days and days since David and his men have eaten. Um, and Ahimelech gives David the show bread. And what he says at that point, he says that the only bread I have is the show bread, and that is to be put on the table regularly on the Sabbath or daily on the Sabbath. So there's the connection to the Sabbath. The priest was to go into the temple and bake new bread and put it on the table every Sabbath, and that was to last for seven days. What's the point of that? We are to feed on the one who is the bread from heaven, Jesus. That showbread points to the Redeemer, and he is to feed his people week by week by week, Sabbath by Sabbath by Sabbath by Sabbath. We are to feed on Christ. Just like we come to the Lord's table And now in the new covenant, we feed on the bread and we drink the wine and we feed on Jesus by faith. That bread in the temple that the priest was to set out was prefiguring Christ and it was showing that God was going to be the sole sustenance of his people in Jesus. That's what the showbread was. And here is the king of Israel, the special anointed king, David. And he is coming with his people. God anointed him when he was 15. He won't be king till he's 30. He has this period of tribulation and distress all the way to the throne. And, and he comes and he asks the priest for the bread and the priest gives it to him. This will cost Ahimelech his life. Saul will kill him. David is being persecuted by those that hate that God has set him apart. And you have an absolute parallel between what happened to David and what's happening to Jesus. Here is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he has been anointed at his baptism. His father said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He has gathered his disciples. He is now moving out into ministry with them. He is tired. He is hungry. He is being opposed by religious leaders, just like David was by Saul. And he is coming and he and his disciples are plucking heads of grain as they go on in ministry, providing for the king and his people, which is a good and right thing. And the Pharisees are there complaining and grumbling and self-righteously judging. Um, It's amazing. It's absolutely astonishing that Jesus can go all the way back and say, in essence, David was a type of me. And if it was okay for him to do it. And, you know, the interesting thing, David was actually violating a ceremonial law. In a sense, the ceremonial law said that only the priest could eat the showbread. Nobody else could. David wasn't a priest. And yet God said in that moment, in that need of necessity, in that moment in which God was leading David as the king and his people with him 
out toward the throne, in that moment of need, it was fine for David to eat the showbread. David didn't sin in doing that. Here, Jesus is not violating any law. He's not violating a ceremonial law. He's not violating a moral law. He's not breaking the fourth commandment. And so how much more justified is Jesus in doing this with his disciples than David was even in doing what he did? That's what Jesus is saying. Um, Phil Riken says, David was no ordinary citizen. This is no ordinary situation. He was the Lord's anointed king. His men were on a mission from God. Another writer says, if it was permissible for David to eat the bread of the presence, it was all the more appropriate for the disciples to eat enough grain to give them strength they needed to follow Jesus. They were serving God's son on God's Sabbath. Now, again, you, you may be bored out of your mind. You may be like, I don't care about this because you don't care about the Lord's day. I had a mentor who told me many years ago, people's problems with the Lord's Day is not with the day, but with the Lord of the Lord's Day. It's a heart issue if we don't understand the importance of this. Jesus is upholding the Sabbath while he is banishing all legalistic perversions of it. Um, Notice how Jesus ends this first conflict over his disciples and the grain field. He says... To the Pharisees, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Um, Jesus doesn't say, don't you know the Sabbath is going to be done away with? Um, He doesn't say, you don't need to worry about the fourth commandment anymore. He does not say that. He says, do you not know that I, the Son of Man, the, the, the heavenly Redeemer who came into time and space to redeem my people and to give them the rest for their souls that they need, do you not know that I am Lord of the Sabbath? I'm the one that determines what's right and wrong. I'm the one that is worshipped on the Sabbath. I'm the one to whom all the focus is to be given on the Sabbath. I'm the one to whom all the worship comes. I am. Jesus is making a divine claim here. He's telling the Pharisees, don't you know I am the Lord that gave the Sabbath at creation? Don't you know I am the Lord who created the whole idea of Sabbath? Don't you know that I am the one in whom all of that is fulfilled? You know, I've always found it fascinating. And I've told this congregation this years ago, but I was meditating on this again. It's so fascinating that, you know, Jesus obeys God's law perfectly. He keeps the Ten Commandments for us perfectly. Never sins never wavers, not one iota, not a thought, not a word, not an emotion, not one sinful affection, nothing. He is absolutely sinless. 30-some years of perfection and law-keeping. And then he dies for all of our wickedness and lawlessness, and his body lays in the tomb on the Old Covenant Sabbath. I want you to think about this. He is put in the tomb... And he rests dead on the Sabbath. He rests from his work. And then he rises on the first day of the week. And he ushers in the new creation as the first fruits. He is the first fruits of God's redemption. And he brings about the new creation through his resurrection. And now we come on the first day of the week and we worship him and we celebrate and we sing to him. And we feed on him and we have our souls satisfied by him. We feed on the flesh and the blood of Jesus. We feed on the heavenly manna. We feed on the heavenly showbread. 
We feed on the one who is the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. And he feeds us, and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's absolutely astonishing. He, he replaces and supplants the old covenant ceremonies and the old covenant Sabbath, and he ushers in a day of resurrection and new creation and rejoicing and praise. You know, one of the reasons I'm not a huge fan of the liturgical calendar is that I think we can fail to miss this. While everyone is celebrating the incarnation of Jesus, we can fail to see the full scope of what we already have in the resurrection of Jesus. He's the Lord of the Sabbath every single day of our life. He is the Lord of the Sabbath on the first day of the week when the church gathers together to worship him. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one to whom all the praise and honors do. Well, notice that Luke couples to this first contention a second contention. And very briefly, I want us to consider this. Notice verse 6. Uh, on another Sabbath, this is not coincidental. Luke is uh, putting these two accounts together. Now, let me just say this. If you went back into the early chapters of Luke, especially chapters 4, 5, and 6, and you took out a pen and you went through the days on which Luke is highlighting the things that Jesus was doing, you would find that there's an overwhelming focus of Jesus doing things on the Sabbath. In the synagogue, in the temple, even as a boy, right? He went up as his custom was with his parents to the temple. Jesus is in the house of God. He's in the place of worship. He is committed absolutely and utterly to doing what God sent him to do. And even in a special way, especially on the day of worship that pointed to him and the rest that he would give. Notice Luke says, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. You know, one of the marked characteristics of Pharisaic legalism is that you are more concerned with what other people are doing than what you are doing. Isn't that interesting? They're watching him. They're more concerned with what others are doing. I'll I'll never forget, I was... uh, fairly young Christian working in a restaurant and trying to witness to a co-worker named uh, Christopher. And when he found out I was in seminary, uh, he said to me one day, he was like, I'm going to be watching you like a hawk. And so I used to call him all Hawkeye. I'd be like, what's up, Hawkeye? I told him, I said, you know, Jesus said, said <laughs> Jesus said that in the Bible. And he said, Really? I said, yeah, Jesus said you'd be watching me like a hawk in the Bible. He was like, really? He said, yeah, if they keep my word, they'll keep yours also. Um, Unbelievers and self-righteous people look for believers to stumble. They look for where can I find things where you're messing up so I can feel better about myself. Pharisees are easy on themselves and hard on others. Um, They are watching Jesus. They're wanting to see him fall. They They are looking, what is he doing now? You know, when we do that, even as Christians, we are acting with Pharisaic self-righteousness. When we're looking at others and, well, they're not doing this, they're not doing that, they're not doing this. Um, We're called to help other believers grow. We're not called to ensnare and entrap and judge demeaningly. Jesus says, focus on the log in your own eye, not the speck in your brother's eye. And here, notice the Pharisees are trying to trap and ensnare the Savior, the sinless one. Now, notice what Luke does. This is super important. Notice Luke couples two things. The end of verse 6 and the end of verse 7 in this account are very important. 
He says, there was a man in the synagogue with his right hand that was withered. That's all he says. There was a man present there. Like, you could have a withered hand right now and I wouldn't know it. You're just here. A man's there somewhere in the synagogue and he's got a withered hand he can't open or move. And it's his right hand. We're going to talk about that in a second. And then the next verse says, and the Pharisees were there and they were trying to trap Jesus. So the man has not cried out to Jesus. He hasn't said, son of David, have mercy on me. He didn't cry out like the leper. He didn't say, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He didn't say, Lord, please heal my hand. He hasn't said anything. We know nothing about the man. We don't even know anything except that he's there in the synagogue and the Pharisees are there and they're trying to trap Jesus. That's super important because Luke, notice, says in verse 8, In verse 7, they're trying to find a reason to accuse Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. They knew the character of Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? They knew the compassion of Jesus. They knew that he was committed to making people whole. They knew that he was committed to healing those who were weighed down in affliction and bondage. They knew. These maybe are some of the same people that were there when he healed the paralytic and said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. They knew what Jesus was like. They knew Jesus wouldn't miss a moment to show mercy and compassion. And they're trying to find a reason to accuse him already. Think about how wicked the heart of man is. That you could hate the merciful and compassionate Savior who is here to restore. Now, I never thought about this. Um, I heard a theologian say this recently. I think C.S. Lewis also makes a note on this in his book on miracles, but that none of the miracles of Jesus were contrary to nature. They were restorative of nature. So Jesus didn't ever just, you know, give somebody a third arm. That would be contrary to nature. He didn't, like, turn a person into an angel. <laughs> he healed a man with a withered hand. He gave him his hand back. He He raised the paralytic up. He gave him his legs and and arms back. He healed the leper of his leprosy. He cleansed him. He restored nature. And, And the Pharisees saw him doing this, and they didn't want the restoration of nature. They didn't want this man to be healed. They, in their hatred for Jesus, also corresponded and resulted in their lack of care and, in a very real sense, hatred for others. Isn't that interesting? If we don't love Jesus, we're not going to love others. If you don't love the Savior, you will not love others. It's impossible to love others and care for them and despise the Savior. There is an absolute correspondence. And notice that Jesus, I love this, verse 8, knew their thoughts. Um, That's always one of my favorite lines in Luke. You know, you you picture the Pharisees and they're scheming and they're planning, let's go over here. And they've got their schemes. They're always scheming. They're always grumbling and mumbling to themselves and talking. And and Luke's like, and he knew their thoughts. And he knew what they were thinking. He knows the depths of the hearts of all men and women. He knows our hearts. He knows what we think. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. He knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. Now, this is one of the coolest things in the world. This man hasn't asked to be healed. The focus is now on the Pharisees trying to ensnare Jesus. And Jesus, in his holy and pure and uh, divine and infinitely perfect 
and his finitely perfect as man wisdom decides I'm going to use this man as a lesson example for the Pharisees and I'm going to heal this man and teach the Pharisees what it is that they are wickedly rejecting. Jesus calls the man and he says, come and stand here. And the man rose and he stood there. We're going to talk about the man's response in just a second. But notice Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Now, if I asked you this morning, okay, on the Lord's day, is it okay for you to do good or evil, to save life or to destroy it? That is like the most fundamental and elementary question ever. If anybody said, oh, it's lawful to do evil, we would think they were crazy. It's lawful to do wrong. Uh, Jesus says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good, to do evil, to save lives or to destroy, to help or to hurt? And there is a gap in between verse 9 and 10 that's not in your Bible. And that gap is that they couldn't answer him. They would not answer him. They didn't say, well, obviously do good. Obviously help and do what's right. The Pharisees actually had a, um, a law that they had come up with that you could only, a doctor could only help someone who was at the point of death on the Sabbath. Now, this man is not at the point of death. He's burdened by the withered hand. It is part of himself, and yet Luke tells us that it was his right hand. That's not an incidental detail. Um, we are to understand from that that this man's livelihood was bound up in his hand. He might have been a tradesman for some time, and he couldn't use the hand that provided for him. He was burdened. His soul was restless because he was afflicted in such a way. Imagine. I want you to imagine what you do. I'm gonna, I'll put myself here. All of a sudden, I can't talk. I'm done. Well, you could write books. Okay, I'm not going to make enough to provide for my family writing books. Ask authors. They don't. Well, you could go get a job at a factory, okay? Great. You sound like the Pharisees right now. Not that there's anything wrong with working at factories. Your gifts and what God has given you are inextricably linked to who you are as a person made in God's image, and your ability to do that is bound up in part with who you are. This man is burdened by this. He is weighed down by this. He is distressed by this. And here come the Pharisees, and they don't care. All they care about is trapping Jesus because they know that Jesus is going to heal him. And so Jesus says, come here, puts the man in front of him. He says to them, is it lawful to save life or destroy it? Is it lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath? And he tells the man, notice this, he tells the man to stretch out his hand. Notice verse 10. He looks around at all of them and he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. Now, you do know this took a measure of faith for this man, don't you? Um, if you were an Israelite living at this time and, and everything you know religiously, if you're going to go to heaven, you have to listen to the re- religious instruction of those that God has appointed for you. And all of them hate this man, Jesus. And Jesus is in the synagogue, and the Pharisees are in the synagogue, and this man is in the synagogue, 
and they hate him and they're opposing him and he says to you, stretch out your hand, there's a very real chance you may think, why would I do what this man's telling me in front of those I'm called to respect and listen to who oppose him? That's a very real thing. This man believes that Jesus is able to do what he is saying he can do. This man has no ability in himself. Think about this. There's an analogy here between God calling sinners from death to life and Jesus healing this man. You know, when Jesus says, follow me, you can't follow him. When I say to you, come unto Jesus and he will give you rest for your souls, you can't by yourself. Unless God gives the grace to do that, you cannot do that. And the prophets, Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, to his people, he says, turn, turn. He says, turn back to me. Why would you die? Turn. And Jeremiah says, Lord, oh, turn us and we will return to you. So at the same time, Jesus is telling this man to do what this man cannot do. Stretch out your hand. He cannot do it. Jesus didn't touch his hand and say, you're better. He said, you believe who I am, believe what I am able to do. The man does it. And Jesus is shown to be the almighty, all-powerful, and all-merciful and compassionate Savior that he always is. Um, I like the thought that Jesus is standing in front of the man, and when the man puts his hand out, he's pointing at Jesus. I don't know that that's exactly what happened, but I like that thought, that this man is now restored. Jesus is justified. And, you know, if you want to know the depth of depravity in the hearts of men, notice the response of the Pharisees. They were filled with fury. Um, Jesus didn't come into this world to punk people out. That would be a cheap way of saying what he just did, but he did just punk out the Pharisees. I mean, he just undermined their entire self-righteous, man-made, legalistic system by giving this man his hand back. Um, Notice they were filled with fury and they discussed with one another what they might do with Jesus. Um, we have two, we are going to have one of two responses to Jesus. Either we are going to believe that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is the one who can give rest to the souls of those who come to him by faith for that rest. It's very interesting, this account right here in Luke 6, in Matthew 12, It comes directly after Jesus says, Come unto me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. It's the the immediate passage before these accounts. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You know why the secular world has uh, articles about secular Sabbaths? Because they know people are weary and heavy laden. And we are weary under the guilt of our sin, under the power of sin, under the uh, lack of fulfillment, what Augustine said, uh, our souls are restless until they find rest in him. That's, that's true. Every one of us knows that's true. Our souls are restless until they find rest in Christ. And Jesus has come to me. He demonstrates that he's able to. And the question is, are you going to come to him? When he says, come to me and I will give you rest, are you going to come to him? Uh, that's, that's the great question. He calls you today and he says, come to me. Maybe you've come to him 20 years ago. 
He says today, come to me. We continue to go back to him. We continue to return to him. We continue to see our need for him. Or we're going to be just like the Pharisees. How do I get rid of Jesus? Most people do that by they they stop sitting under the ministry of the word. They stop reading their Bible, and then they start to ridicule Christianity. That's usually what happens. They once make a profession. They're there, but they hate Jesus. They don't see their need for him. They don't see their need for that rest. They don't see that God wants to feed them. Let me just say this as we come here to the table in a moment. The living God wants to satisfy you. Why would we not want that? I mean, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the great healer. He's the great restorer. He took all the guilt of our sin on himself, was nailed to the tree, buried in the tomb on the old covenant Sabbath, rested from his labors, rose. He rose us up with him and he says, I will be an everlasting fountain of living waters for your soul. I will be the bread from heaven that feeds you. I want you to think this morning as you go from here, how many hundreds of ways you and I am trying to satisfy ourselves. All the ways, dietary, exercise, financial, travel, whatever it is, we're trying to find satisfaction. And the living God says, listen, I've given you one day in seven, and I've given you my son, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, and I've given my life for you, and I want you to come and feed on me, and I want you to live, and I want your soul to be satisfied. That's that's God's word to you this morning. He wants his people to come and feed on him and find rest for their souls. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we have not loved you and your Son and your Spirit as the Lord of all, and you, Lord Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath as we ought. And we have not loved your day as we ought. We pray that you would renew us and restore us, that you would give us uh, joy in uh, desiring to set apart one day in seven to feed on you, to be in your word, to be in worship, to be in fellowship with your people and to do good and to be merciful and to care for others. We pray, our God, that you would feed us as we come to the table, that you would satisfy us with the living bread. We pray that you would give us hearts that Know that deep and abiding rest that you have purchased for us by your blood on the cross, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would be to us as we come now to the table, the Lord of the Sabbath and the bread from heaven. We pray these things in your name. Amen.